0: His Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Professor Bradley C.S. Watson. He is the McKenna Chair in American and Western Political Thought at St. Vincent College, author and editor of many books, including Living Constitution, Dying Faith, Progressivism and the New Science of Jurisprudence, and Progressive Challenges to the American Constitution, A New Republic. There's a new book out that he has. It just came out from Notre Dame Press. Progressivism, the Strange History of a Radical Idea. Thank you for joining us, Professor Watson. Thank you very much, Mark, for having me. It's great to be here. What makes progressivism, which sounds so nice and warm and who's against progress, what makes that a radical
1: That's kind of a central uh, theme of the book and other things I've uh, written. The progressive idea, simply put, is that the principled American constitutionalism of uh, fixed natural rights, limited and dispersed powers, has to be overturned and replaced by a sort of organic evolutionary model of the Constitution that facilitates the authority of uh, experts, experts dedicated to fundamentally, to the expansion of the public sphere and to political control, especially at the national level. And we've seen uh, this a lot in, uh, in recent years in American politics. We're seeing it right now, this notion of expert uh, control. This is really hostile to the founder's constitution, again, of uh, limited and dispersed powers, right? And uh, the progressives uh, reject that. And The story I'm telling in my new book, uh, Progressivism, The Strange History of a Radical Idea, is how the historians, the 20th century bigwig historians, told the story of this progressive idea, what they revealed, what they hid. And the basic uh, argument of my book is that they hid a lot. They hid more than they uh, revealed. They hid the hostility of this progressive idea to the Founders' Constitution. and Mm -hmm. They hid the kind of, uh, you know secular millenarian religious dimensions the religious uh, sort of uh, secular if you will religious fervor of the progressives to overturn the founder's constitution the historians just didn't uh tell the most important parts of the story really
0: you know you spent a lot of time running through all of those historians many of them academics uh woodrow wilson was an academic for a prominent academic for a time and one thing you just said is the the, the role of the experts and that this actually is contrary to the founder's vision. Now, you think of progressivism 100 years ago as something that was sort of geared toward the little guy, things like fair labor laws uh, or food safety acts, things right. like this. But really, there is something of a, an, a, a reliance on the experts, the educated ones, that does, d- does that often drift into uh, a hostility toward the people?
1: Yeah, that's a very uh, good question, actually, because uh, the way the story of progressivism has been told, again, largely by the historians with whom I'm dealing in my uh, current book, is that uh, Progressivism, for the most part, is this was this warm and fuzzy social movement, you know, in the early decades of the 20th century, for things like labor reforms and, uh, you know, uh, child labor laws and safe health and safety in the face of, you know, a burgeoning, a new burgeoning industrial economy. The sense that, uh, you know, we need uh, new regulations in these areas, and that was a part of uh, progressivism, but it wasn't the most uh, important part. The part that's really the most important part is the sort of intellectual anti-constitutional. Dimension of progressivism, which is what I've uh, concentrated on uh, in my writings, and um, when you bring in the intellectual progressives, right? The uh, Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson being a famous one, but also um, you know many of the uh, many academics, including the historians I'm dealing with. When you bring in the intellectual progressives, there there starts to become a real hostility to the uh, little person. Let's say, I mean uh, Wilson at one point refers to ordinary people as rustics handling delicate machinery. I love that phrase, right? <laughs> and he says you can't, uh, you know, you, you the, the idea is that you have smart leaders, smart leaders like uh, Woodrow Wilson kind of directing the overall national economy, overall society with, um, you know, sort of reading, as it were, the public mind, but not letting the rustics, you know, get too involved in the, uh, certainly in the details of administration. That's for uh, the experts. So you start to see, I think, the beginnings, really, of what we now take to be a kind of, uh, you know, blue state, red state divide, uh, political divides in America. In this uh, late 19th, early 20th century phenomenon promulgated by the progressives of desiring to overturn the Founders' Constitution, basically, and emphasize uh, expert rule, particularly, as they say, at the national level, but, uh, you know, experts at all uh, levels, really. And we start to move away from Republican government, self-government, toward, uh, you know, government of what uh, some call the administrative state.
0: You know, one fact that you brought up, uh, historical fact, that surprised me was that progressivism had very quickly, it seemed, become so popular and almost so apolitical that all three candidates for president in 1912, Taft, Roosevelt, and Wilson, claimed the mantle of progressivism. I mean, that that, that wouldn't have happened e- even eight years before. I mean, this, this it seems like a sudden rise of popularity. Is that correct?
1: That's right. I mean, Taft was the one who most uh, put into of those three who most put into question the new the burgeoning progressive synthesis. But even he, you know, wanted to hitch his wagon to that uh, train a little bit. And uh, this is uh, the, the pivotal election of uh, 1912, as you say. I mean, uh, th- it's a consequence of intellectual currents that have been swirling around in America. For about thirty years before that, maybe even a bit, uh, maybe even a bit more than that, the intellectual currents on which progressivism was founded include things, and I deal with these a bit in the book. Uh, things like uh, social Darwinism, the application of Darwinian evolutionary concepts to politics, to the Constitution, and American pragmatism—the idea that uh, you know there's no truth simply. Uh, well, Br- truth Brad, is-
0: let's let let's pause that. Give us an example of how. Social Darwinism would because I, I read those I read the sections uh, closely there the intellectual history that you're giving is is very strong and I I should say to to listeners it's very accessible as well I think that teachers who are doing American history uh, in undergraduate classes would be would be wise to to add this book to the syllabus uh, how did social Darwinism make its way from you know certain ideas among among the, the elite the academics into some form of progressive policy
1: that's also a very good question i mean the basic uh, darwinian idea of course is that uh, you know organisms uh, evolve the old notion of species fixed species with fixed national uh, natural uh, attributes uh, uh, is sort of an old fashioned notion uh, The Darwinists reject that. They say species are always kind of, uh, you know, through variations morphing into something else. The social Darwinists come along and start applying that evolutionary model to, um, to politics. They start saying things like, well, the Founder's Constitution, of course, was this outmoded 18th century thing which uh, has to either be done away with or has to grow, has to uh, you know, evolve into something else, and it will evolve into something else with our you know, sort of expert guidance. So the idea of the Living Constitution, the model of the Living Constitution, comes out of this uh, early sort of social Darwinist thought, and we still very much deal with the consequences uh, of the Living Constitution today, you know, every time the Supreme Court hands down some uh, uh, you know, crackpot decision that doesn't bear much relation to the text of the founders' Constitution. They're they're basically imbibing that living constitution model. So, uh, to get back to your question, um, I think that uh, the idea of the living constitution and a and an ever uh, you know ever changing uh, sense of the natural uh, attributes of let's say human beings. Um, mm-hmm. has never been fully embraced by the people. This has always been a kind of intellectual pastime more or less imposed by the people, by the progressive intellectual classes beginning in the early 20th century, but really continuing all the way to the 21st century. And that's why you have, I think, uh, these you know, very interesting and very visceral divisions in America right now between people who still believe in the old fashioned founders constitution, you know, it means what they wrote, if we're going to change it, and we can change it, we need to change it via a formal amendment process, not by, you know, uh, the dictates of elites, whether they be on the Supreme Court or in the political or administrative uh, branches. So I don't think that, um, you know, the uh, Darwinian or revolutionary model of the Constitution has ever been fully embraced by the people but it's been very much embraced by our liberal progressive ruling classes who just sort of tell us what the constitution means today or tell us you know what it is to be human today tell us what the natural the, you know or the or, or the uh, you know the latest sort of identitarian uh, politics demand right and so they are rejecting not only the founders constitution but the idea of, of a natural order of natural rights which were so important to the founders human beings are creatures of a certain type a certain species and rank to borrow from uh, from uh, john locke the progressives uh, reject this they say even human beings uh, you know Know, can be remade in whatever image we want to remake them. And I don't think the people have ever fully uh, bought into that. It's an intellectual
0: uh, disposition. One angle that comes out here is really the affective one. We've got the intellectual arguments that you lay out very well, but there was also sort of an emotional component that comes through among the, the elite progressives. Uh, you, you say that Woodrow Wilson actually had some contempt for that old constitutional order. It wasn't just simply a matter of, well, we need to adjust, we need to adapt, we need to, uh, we need to progress, but there, there was, there was at the same time almost, again, a, a disdain for the old, which, of course, carries over into contempt for the people who cling to those old ways. That seems to me to be a common thread running through a lot of these progressives. Is that right?
1: Yes, I think that is uh, that is right. There is a sort, and you see this uh, certainly uh, t- uh, today as well, right? Uh, the early progressives start this uh, ball rolling. I think of um, of although they they claim to be, you know, the true Democrats, small D Democrats, in favor of democracy and the will of the people and protecting the uh, interests of the uh, the average person. In fact, because. Average people, you know, don't buy. Never didn't buy into then fully, and don't buy now fully into the idea of, uh, you know, uh, evolving, changing everything. They, the, the ordinary people, still cling, you know, to their founders, their regime, their political order, and therefore. Ordinary people are seen to be sort of um, the enemies, in some case, of, uh, of uh, progressive reform. And therefore, there's a kind of, uh, as you say, contempt, I think, for, uh, for common people that runs through this high-toned, you know, sort of uh, evolutionary, pragmatic model of uh, the American regime. They really don't, uh, for the most part. I think much of the common man, although they claim to. They claim to be the friends.
0: We certainly see a great deal of that now from from the left. I mean, you know, the deplorables remark is is the prime example. But did people in America in 1920 did they feel the contempt? I mean, was there was there sort of a surprise on the part of you know farmers in in Nebraska or populists uh, back then? Uh, which was a party, did you start to sense a social tension coming through at this time?
1: Yeah, I think uh I think back then it was less clear in a way than it is now because uh you know populism and the populist movement that uh, sort of uh, worked in tandem sometime with uh sometimes with intellectual progressives saw real threats, real economic dislocations in uh you know late 19th early 20th century industrializing America particularly rural areas, farming areas and so they 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 saw saw something to be gained, I think, through um, progressive reform, certainly, uh, you know, a a figure like uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, appeals across, you know, a wide range of the political uh, spectrum with his barn burning addresses with a kind of religious uh, religious fervor to them. so the populists um, and the progressives uh, you know form uh, form an alliance but uh, at some point it becomes and, and i think this doesn't really become clear until later in the 20th century it becomes evident that the intellectual progressives are really uh, hostile to populism because it doesn't go along with um, their ideas of national regulatory reform and control right populist sentiments are too wild they're too that um, uh, they can't be contained um, you see this, uh, well, California is a good contemporary example of this, right? The uh, the ability of Californians to put things to uh, ballot initiatives is an outgrowth of early 20th century progressive reform. But when Californians actually do this, they tend not to vote for things that, uh, <laughs> you know, current right. progressives, current liberals uh, really want them to vote for. So they become, uh, you know, they become the enemy, and then what do the progressives do? Well, they go to court and try and get these things uh, overturned, right? So there's, there's all, there, this tension was inherent there at the beginning, I would say, but it became more evident as the 20th century uh, wore on.
0: Brett, Brett, did you see that Californians uh, voted down affirmative action again? I did see that, yeah. A, a few weeks ago? Now, is, does that fit into, you know, same, same, same phenomenon right there?
1: Yeah, absolutely right. It becomes apparent that uh, some of these progressive reforms, including initiative and referendum reforms, um, um, didn't work out the way the progressives wanted, right, because the people are certainly... Uh, more conservative, less prone to sort of s- embrace social engineering measures than their, um, you know, political masters would like them to be. Therefore, this uh, this tension constantly is playing itself out now.
0: Leave me alone. <laughs> right, <laughs> so, right, exactly. Okay, so as we move forward into the century, Brad, how did the New Deal solidify, you, you really say it solidified progressivism forever, at least certain elements of progressivism?
1: Within the New Deal, you get uh, what I call programmatic liberalism, right, Uh, or programmatic uh, progressivism. It's no longer simply an idea or set of intellectual attachments, that is, intellectual attachments to social Darwinism, pragmatism, things I talk about in the book. It's no longer just that, and it's no longer linked strongly to uh, populism, right? What it becomes linked to is the administrative state, right? The creation of national permanent national uh, bureaucracies whose point is to administer things, again, allegedly for the interests of the people, although uh, you know, it becomes increasingly apparent, I think, in the uh, late 20th and 21st centuries that the people are at best uh, afterthoughts. The bureaucracies have uh, minds uh, and lives of their own, and they're almost impossible to, to tame or eliminate. We might want to drain the swamp, but it's much more easy to uh, say than it is to do, right? So um, the New Deal becomes the way in which uh, i think a lot of progressive ideas the importance of you know the national regulatory state that is articulated by people like Roosevelt and Wilson becomes a sort of permanent feature of the American uh, political order. And with that, of course, federalism, the, uh, the, the prerogatives of states become overridden in favor of the centralization of just about everything in both in administrative agencies, but also, frankly, in uh, federal courts, which are also, uh, you know, a major vehicle for the promotion of progressive
0: ideology. Another strain that comes into play as we move through the century is Christianity, that Christianity plays a strong role in the process of the establishment spread of progressivism. You, you actually quote Richard Hofstetter uh, quite a bit, who, who believed that actually progressivism originates, at least in part, it originates in Protestant guilt. Well, was was Hofstadter? you agree with him on that specifically? And then generally, well, how, how did Christianity come into this uh, historical evolution?
1: Yeah, well, let me start with the uh, the question of uh, uh, Christianity or, or Christian progressivism, which sort of predates the historian Hofstadter's uh, analysis of it, and. Um uh, one of the areas in this book that I really uh, concentrate on is a sort of untilled ground. I think that is to say, um, I I entitle the chapter "The Real Presence of Christ." The, the the progressives, meaning something a little different from the real presence of Christ uh, than uh, many Christians do. That, that is to say, the progressives emphasized a sort of reconstituted worldly Christianity, right, calling for the expansion of the state in the name of moral and theological progress. So. The fervor of uh, Christian progressivism, I think, was unlike prior American religious awakenings. Instead of concentrating on individual moral failings, the need for individual reformation, what did the Christian progressives do? They concentrated almost exclusively on matters of social and economic uh, justice, right? Do you have figures that I deal with, like Richard Ely, who's, a, who's an economist and an armchair theologian. Um, he makes a lot of uh, striking claims, but uh, one of the most uh, striking, I think, he says something like Christianity is primarily concerned with this world. It's the mission of Christianity to bring the kingdom of righteousness uh, here and into the here and now and rescue us from evil, redeem our social relations. This idea that Christianity is fundamentally a phenomenon for this world to solve political and economic uh, problems, right? And his... um, Uh, compatriots, people like uh, the Protestant Walter uh, Rauschenbusch, the Catholic Father John Ryan, um, they also, uh, you know, bring Jesus, as it were, down from heaven to solve, you know, sort of economic problems, basically, right? Uh, uh, They justify uh, increased political control on the basis of, you know, what would Jesus do kind of thing if he were confronted the question of, you know, a minimum wage or, or something like that, and you still see that strain of uh, liberal Christianity today, but of course, increasingly liberal Christianity, I'll say one thing about the early progressive theologians, I think they were actually real, real uh, Christians. They they were trying to, uh, you know, figure it out. Uh, contemporary liberal Christianity, of course, and it's a short step. Once you make Christianity about the here and now, what do you end up with? The here and now, but you lose the Christianity part, right, which is kind of, uh, you know, where we are, but, they, but contemporary liberals still have that messianic Fervor, which I trace to the early sort of uh, Christian progressives, when Christianity was still a real thing for them. Increasingly, though, uh, you know, liberals are secular, but they're incredibly, you know, moralistic and self-righteous, and I think they derive that from, uh, you know, from the early pr- Christian uh, progressives. I deal with in the book. You mentioned uh, the historian Richard Hofstetter. Yeah, I mean, he. Um, He's one of the major 20th century historians I deal with as I tell the story of how the historians unfolded the progressive uh, phenomenon. He writes a lot. He wrote, uh, you know, just a ton of stuff. He was an incredibly uh, prolific uh, mid-20th century historian, and in his telling the desire for progressive reform is kind of a psychological phenomenon, rooted to some extent, as you suggest, in in guilt, maybe even uh, Christian uh, guilt, but also in insecurity, status anxiety, uh, things this. And of course, in emphasizing these sort of psychological components, psychological reductionism, as I call it, what does he miss? And he's like all the other big 20th century historians in this sense. He misses the fundamentally, which the progressives themselves are well aware of, the fundamentally anti-constitutional dimensions of progressive thought, right? The Constitution barely even arises in the telling of the uh, mid-20th century historians, right? They come up, they've all got their own pet theories. In Hofstadter's case, it's status anxiety and psychological disquiet brought by, uh, you know, industrialization. But the idea that the progressives were at war with the Founders' Constitution, which the intellectual progressives themselves say they are, uh, you know, never really comes across. Again, so progressivism again, is is told as the relatively warm and fuzzy social movement for reform based on a variety of theories of these historians. But the anti-constitutional dimension uh, doesn't come across, and neither does the secular millenarian dimension, which I think is very important today, as I say, with the kind of um, moralistic tone that the progressive left uh, takes when it's dealing with the rustics, uh, you know, those people who think they're doing God's work or something like it, if only they believed in God, right? So... We're left with the sort of the the residue or the remnants of this uh, sort of intellectual uh, outlook of the early uh, 20th century, but it's now fully secularized and uh, kind of on steroids, moralistic uh, steroids at this point. But the historians like Hofstadter sort of miss these big picture things as they emphasize, um, you know, basically progressivism fitting with the overall American Consensus, as they see it, right? They don't see progressivism as a radical break with the founders' ideas of republicanism. They see it as just a sort of continuation, dealing with you know sort of new social problems at the end of the 19th century, but not fundamentally uh, breaking with anything. And this is what I call them uh, to account for in this book.
0: You you know what you said a moment ago about Richard Ely and the social gospel of of uh, Rauschenbach. The it does seem as if they regard this as just self-evident. Why can't we make this world a better place? That's not radical. That's that's just that's just being good Christians. Why can't we fix things? Why can't an expert come in and adjust things so that people live better lives? It seems to me that there there's something very tempting about that about that vision and. You can see them getting frustrated. Why, why, don't, why don't other people see this? It's so self-evident what we, what we want to do. Why can't they just come around? I, and, and, and that would lead, you know, when you were talking, it reminded me of some of the work by Hofstetter. I've got his books on my shelf, The American Political Tradition. You, you, you talk a lot about it. He had a book about Anti-Americanism in American Life. And he wrote the famous essay, The Paranoid Strain, <laughs> in, in American in, in American history, which is about basically about these conservatives who won't just you know wake up and and get with the get with the program, would you say that that stigma applied to conservatism became sort of a fundamental feature of progressivism by the mid century?
1: Yeah, Hofstadter. I mean, he comes up with he sort of invents the idea, if you will, that uh, you know conservatism is a uh you know it's a kind of psychological uh, disorder right it's there's something there's fundamentally paranoid about uh, about the conservative uh, sensibility and this of course is uh, you know in in keeping with his overall psychological reductionism, you know, when he uh, when he analyzes the progressives, he tends to be psychologically uh, reductionist. It's really about uh, guilt or status anxiety. Conservatives are just paranoids, right? They're standing in the way of uh, necessary uh, progressive reforms. But fundamentally, he doesn't see progressivism as a kind of coherent ideological strain, as I call it, uh, you know, the... Um, Darwinism, uh, pragmatism and certain strains of German idealism influenced by Hegel, they come together and form a potent intellectual cocktail by the uh, by the early part of the 20th century and that cocktail is uh, progressivism but the um, the intellectual antecedents are these uh, philosophic movements which the historians don't deal with them. Maybe they, some of them can't deal with them, but they don't deal with them too, I think, for disciplinary reasons. The uh, One of the things this book ends up being about, really, is a critique of disciplinary insularity, a critique of the corruptions of the American Academy uh, as a whole, uh, starting in the middle part of the 20th century as it drifts left as its own premises, um, and uh, sort of uh, disciplinary orientations are themselves fundamentally progressive, the people working within those uh, or, or relying on those premises and working within those disciplines, then, you know, they become almost incapable of seeing progressivism for what it is because their whole disciplines have been corrupted by the progressive uh, synthesis, right? They are, in their own way, you know, uh, Darwinian evolutionists. Their disciplines deny the possibility of trans-historical truth, right? The discipline of, um, of history commits itself only to uh, consensus, and, you know, you're an academic too, you know as well as I do that academic disciplines are not the places you go for dispassionate pursuit of the truth, right? They have their own in-house rules and norms, and uh, you know certain things can be said and other things can't be said, and and it depends on what the consensus is within that discipline at any uh, given moment. And the consensus within the historical discipline in the 20th century is largely a progressive consensus. So the progressives are are um, you know defined by the very Thing they claim to be describing, right? So I talk a little bit about confirmation bias, you know, the tendency of investigators to seek and to elevate that which confirms their pre-existing hypotheses, right? And professional academics who you know, dedicate themselves nominally to objectivity, or at least uh, many of them do, have never been... Immune to defamation or even outright capture by professional interests as they you know try to as they as they allegedly objectively investigate these historical phenomena. So the, it's, the book is really partly about academic corruptions and just blind spots, disciplinary blind spots.
0: Final question, Brad: You have a term in there, liberal millennialism. Uh, it appears in the book. You're, you're describing an earlier phenomenon. What was that phenomenon, and do you see it alive today in the woke? Revolution.
1: The idea that again, uh, you know, the um, the millennia, the, the secular millennium, the liberal millenarianism, the idea that uh, you know somehow our salvation is just over the horizon if we only pursue the right set of social, political, economic. Uh, Policies. Well, of course, older Christians never thought salvation would be in the here and now. The uh, the great political theorist Eric Fogelin, uh famously uh, warned against immanentizing the eschaton. To use uh, use big words, right? Making uh, salvation in the here and now. We must uh, we must uh, avoid doing that. But the progressives, in a way, lay the foundation for doing that. The early uh, Christian progressives do, and then um, you know, as uh, the whole, whole the progressive mind sort of secularizes in the last uh, 100 years, all you're left with is the idea of the secular millennium being just over the horizon, a little more hope, a little more change, and we will realize our dreams. But of course, God and the idea that salvation perfection can never really come in this world is absent from the secularized versions of these claims so uh, that's kind of where we are now i think but that starts now more than 100 years ago with the uh, early american progressive phenomenon um, growing out of these intellectual movements
0: the book is progressivism the strange history of a radical idea professor watson thank you for joining us thank you very much great to be here and thank you for listening to our conversation which has been supported by wyoming catholic college which combines great books the catholic tradition and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.